All right, thanks guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to High Watt the Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for uh, coming today. It's good to see you all, and welcome to those of you from home as well uh, tuning in. Uh, Eric, I forgot my clicker. Am I bringing the other one up? I don't know where I misplaced it to, but there should be a second one, right? Okay, thanks guys. Sorry about that. Um, we are in a series right now in the book of 2 Corinthians, so uh, if you guys uh, have a Bible or phone app, want to turn there to chapter 6 today, uh, that's where we'll be, looking at uh, this idea of being, uh, not being unequally yoked with uh, unbelievers, so we'll uh, kind of unpack this theme as well as some other things in, in uh, context, so we'll be in 6.14 uh, through the first verse of chapter 7, actually. Uh, 2 Corinthians is one of the, the two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Uh, most of you are aware of that, but if you're, if you're brand new to the Bible, this is, um, uh, this is uh, some contextual things to understand that uh, Paul is writing letters to the church that uh, instruct them, essentially, uh, in what it means to be a Christian and Christian theology and what it means to be in community with other Christians, what that looks like. In, in a lot of cases, Paul is writing to uh, thwart uh, attack and threats, uh, whether it be false teaching uh, was kind of the primary one, which has been occurring in Second Corinthians as well. We've been talking about that, and we'll continue to. But could be other things as well, things that are threatening the church uh, in, in different ways. And so he acts like a good shepherd, a protective pastor uh, that's looking out for wolves that are trying to, to eat the sheep and, and threaten them. So um, that's a big piece to these letters as well. Ultimately, as we've been saying, and especially if you're brand new to the Bible, remember that these letters are ultimately written by God to us. And so this, th- these are... Real letters written by real people with real names in real cities that still exist today, in real parts of the world, in countries that still exist today, uh, real Christians who are safe from their sins like us. And so the, the, the words then, the themes actually resonate. They, they transcend time and culture, and they're ultimately, the, the true meaning of them is found when we understand them as God's love letters uh, written to us about his son. And so have that in mind as we go forward today, as we... Um, Heaven in this series, all right? So let's start in verse 14. Let's read this in full to begin, and then we'll, we'll come back. Verse 14, Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Okay, just some initial uh, kind of clarifying commentary to start with um, in a side on marriage and singleness. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to start here. Um, But the idea, first of all, of being uh, not unequally yoked with unbelievers uh, is a metaphor that pulls from the imagery of two yoked cattle pulling a plow or a carriage behind them, and how they need to be equally yoked for it to work. And so Paul is just saying, Christian, don't be yoked together with people who are not Christians. Don't be yoked with someone who does not believe, not just belief as in the existence of God, but who does not trust in Jesus' blood for 
the forgiveness of sins. It just won't work if we're yoked too closely uh, with those individuals. All right, so now many of you might know that, that oftentimes this passage gets reduced to an encouragement for Christians to not marry people who are not Christians yet, and that is certainly a fair takeaway from this passage. And without question, it's a wise principle for pre-married Christians to understand. Uh, don't marry someone who will be, that you'll be unequally uh, yoked with spiritually. It just won't work, uh, the Bible says. You won't be able to have spiritual unity or spiritual intimacy with that person unless that person becomes a Christian or unless you become unchristian, which is the more common path uh, that these marriages usually take. Now, to those who are in a mixed spiritual marriage, though, the Bible's not saying here, get divorced. It's not saying there's no hope for any kind of happiness whatsoever in your marriage. Uh, it, you've, you've made vows, and, and, and you should keep them. Uh, but it, it is saying, though, to you, as the Christians, stay the course and love your spouse and pray for them, but don't let their non-Christian spirituality win you over to a place where you just walk away from Christ, who is your true bridegroom. That's, that's the main message here. Not just here, but, of course, in uh, the rest of the Bible as well. Because Christians believe that Jesus is more important to them than their spouse, right? Or they should. Um, you know, it, marriage for the Christian is very important. It's sacred. Uh, God made it. Uh, it's sacred. It's meant to be taken seriously. Um, uh, monogamy and, uh, and prayerfulness and intentionality and love and intimacy, all those things are very important. But they're not as important, the spouse, our spouses themselves are not as important as Jesus, who is the ultimate meaning behind marriage. He's our true bridegroom. So for Christians, this makes sense, or it should. This can be hard, of course, to apply and believe sometimes, uh, but this is, the, this is the deeper reality and truth behind it. But for a non-Christian, someone who's not a Christian yet, that is a completely foreign idea and will cause disunity and harm. Or, or, or again, uh, the Christian will either, or they could acquiesce and lose their faith, but that's the brutal truth to it. Either that will happen or um, there will just be some kind of disunity and harm that will befall the marriage. Because for a non-Christian to have that uh, is um, to, to be faced with that, that idea that there's something more important in their spouse's life than they uh, is, uh, is difficult. Uh, as others have said before, it's better to be lonely and single than lonely and unequally yoked in marriage. There's, there's a lot of truth to that. Loneliness is, is, a, is a problem. It's a difficult thing. God remedies that in different ways. Uh, through, through friendship and through, um, through peers in the church and so forth. But being unequally yoked in marriage will cause a type of loneliness that far outweighs anything we experience as singles. All right, so all of that said, though, uh, I don't want to make this a sermon entirely that today because as you might know, as you might have felt in 2 Corinthians, uh, this is not really the, the main topic for Paul. Like Paul is not just digressing. Uh, he's not just kind of like shelving all he's been talking about for six chapters and then all of a sudden kind of out of nowhere uh, just saying, now to those of you who are, uh, who are single and not married, yet to those of you who are, uh, here's some advice on, on singleness. Uh, to the singles ministry in the, church, in the church in Corinth, here's a few words here. He's not doing that. Uh, that that's, this is a legitimate takeaway uh, for sure, but it's not the only thing going on. If you've been listening and reading along with us in this series, it's possible that you kind of uh, felt that even as I read this, uh, this morning. Actually, even as you go into chapter 7, like we did today, Paul says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. And every is a broad term, right? That, that, that encompasses marriage or different aspects of marriage, right? But every is a very broad term. So is body and spirit. That's a very all-encompassing idea and term, right? 
And so this obviously, this can include marriage, and it does. It's a small slice of the pie, but the, the pie itself is, is much bigger. So let's move on then to talking about what that means. So um, we'll, we'll talk next about this idea of um, spiritual separation. And so here's where we have to really slow down. Uh, we, have, we have to understand these verses, particularly verses 16 and 17, where Paul is quoting two parts of the Old Testament in their original context, and then talk about how Paul is using them here because Paul is using them differently. And so again, if you're new to the Bible, this is just something to come to terms with, that the Bible has two testaments, and some things that happen in the beginning of the book uh, take on different flavor in the end of the book. So whether it's Jesus or Paul, they cite the Old Testament in more of a fulfilled way or in a different way uh, than it was understood originally. And so just to walk through this sort of simply here, it's kind of complicated, but uh, to look at it from three different angles or by way of progression. Originally, these words here, so just going back, when Paul says, when Paul quotes from Leviticus 26 and Isaiah 52, when he says, God says, I'll make my dwelling among them, but then also this call to separate uh, from other people. Uh, when he says separate from them, go out from them, uh, he's quoting from Isaiah 52 there as well. Leviticus is a, is a big book that heavily utilizes this imagery uh, as well. But again, originally, when these words were spoken, these words were uh, a, an oracle from God. They were a word from God to Israel in reference to Israel's physical separation from other pagan nations uh, in connection with food laws that helped distinguish them from other people. So, a lot of you guys know this, but there are different types of food in the Old Testament. There were sacrificial animals, there were clean foods and unclean foods, just like there were priests, there were Israelites, and there were non-Israelites or Gentiles. And so the types of foods symbolized the different types of people. And so God said, separate the foods as I am separating you from among uh, the ranks of other godless nations. And so the theology of separation then in the Old Testament did a couple of things. One it symbolized separation between God and sinners. And so in that symbol, Israel represented God to the world. And so it was kind of this ongoing drama of how uh, it was impossible to draw near to God because of our sin, just like it was for a Gentile, essentially. It was impossible for them to draw near to an Israelite and, and vice versa. And at least essentially that was the case. There were some exceptions, but essentially that was what was being symbolized. The second thing, though, was more of a human-to-human -human symbol or idea and that was it showed how God was at work in the world calling out people for himself from the ranks of other godless nations. And it symbolized how he would one day do that in a much greater way through his son, Jesus Christ. So skipping ahead to Mark 7 in the New Testament, Jesus helps us understand this when he at one point changes the Old Testament. He changes the laws by declaring all foods clean. That was a change. He changed the Old Testament law outright, not just in this way, but in other ways as well. He fulfilled it uh, by way of, of, of changing it uh, so that it gave way to him. And he makes it clear that salvation then through that declaration of all foods being clean because of what they symbolized, the different types of people that, they, that it symbolized, it, it makes it clear that salvation had come to the Gentiles, to non-Jews as well. And that that type of ethnic separation then had fully come to an end, just like separation between God and sinners was coming to an end, which again was part of what was being symbolized all along. Old Testament separation between peoples symbolized separation between God and humans and sinners like us. 
But now in Christ, because the latter was being resolved, the issue between us and God, because that was being fixed, that's what God came to do. Because that was the case, there would be no more need for the shadow and the symbol of the former. We would expect that to be changed as well. And of course, that is what we see happen in places like Mark 7 and Acts 10 as well, when Peter sees the sheet come down from heaven with all the unclean and clean foods mixed together. If you remember that vision, uh, that's what's being symbolized there as well. Okay, but on the third level here, in 2 Corinthians 6, in today's passage on the human-to-human level, Paul uses these verses differently, or maybe you could say in a more enhanced New Testament way, by reading it as though the new call of God then to the church is to separate spiritually from unbelievers, from non-Christians. Not physically necessarily, like it was in the Old Testament between Jew and Gentile, but spiritually to separate from unbelievers. Though again, there might be some physical dimensions to it, like we talked about marriage. You could say, well, isn't marriage a physical thing? Aren't you in close proximity uh, physically with another person? Of course you are. Uh, And so there might be some physical dimensions to this, but primarily Paul uses this in a a spiritual way, in, in that kind of fulfilled sense. All right? So now Christians differ on what the precise practical outworkings of this verse are, uh, some of you might be aware of this. You know, the, the big question is, what does it mean to go out from their midst? So when, when Christians read this verse and they see God say, go out from there or unbelievers' midst, like, well, what does that look like? What, is, what does that mean exactly? And it might feel impossible to do on some levels, and it kind of is, right? And so on physical levels. Uh, but what, what does this mean, especially in, in a spiritual sense? So, so aside from like more extreme views like Amish separationist perspectives uh, that, that, again, wrongly interpret this verse physically. So bracketing that to the side and putting that over here is a, is a wrong in physical interpretation of this principle. Aside from that, though, there, there are layers to this. And there's a spectrum that Christians can agree on the majors here, but maybe disagree on some of, of the minors. But I think there are a few layers, though, to this that once we kind of understand this in a layered way, it can help us spiral towards meaning and understanding what Paul and ultimately God is, is getting at. So, so three quick things. The first is, we already talked about this, but implications for marriage and friendship and family. So we talk about marriage, not so much friendship. But So on one level, Paul's talking about not marrying a, a non-believer, but also has implications for other relationships in our life, like friendship and um, family. But also this greater idea that we tend to become like those we hang around, Right? Like if you think of your childhood or maybe your present life as well, uh, your friends, you tend to become like them. You sometimes almost take on some of their mannerisms. You might laugh like them sometimes or start to kind of take on their sense of humor a little bit or dress like them. Uh, It doesn't always happen, of course, but it is human nature for that to kind of happen on some level. It's almost impossible to to avoid. Uh, Spencer and I have like the same, I think three of the same t-shirts, for example. Uh, So... A lot of us have Hiawatha t-shirts, but I mean, like, we have, like, some of the, the same uh, t-shirts, uh, and I don't know if that was the case maybe 10 years ago, but whatever. Um, but, so, but Paul is, um, Paul's saying here, though, or he's not saying that Christians should not have friends who are different from us spiritually. He's not saying that. Uh, but he is saying that we should separate spiritually from our unbelieving friends and neighbors and, and family. Uh, as Christians, we should feel different from our non-Christian friends or peers sometimes, right? I mean, if we don't at all, we're probably not Christian. And, 
Um, and all this, by the way, has implications for the importance of being around the church. Like, think about if it's true that we become like those we hang around, and if it's true that the church is the body of Christ, and if it's true it's part of our journey as Christians is to become Christ-like, then we must be around the church, right? You, you cannot become Christ-like unless you're immersed in the life of the church because you won't become like the people that you're not with, right? Sanctification or becoming holy or becoming like Christ must be deeply immersed in knowing well and being around other Christians in a local church context. It, it is outright impossible to become Christ-like alone. That's part of the point. That's actually a whole other sermon I can't go into and delve into in too much depth today. Um, but as an aside, we, this has implications for that, right? Um, who are you hanging out with primarily? And, you know, who are you becoming like because of that, right? Uh, we, sh- we should be asking these kind of questions as Christians in the spirit of this passage. All right? Uh, now, past that, though, sometimes in practical theology, we talk about this idea here, the idea of the three R's. Receive, redeem, and reject. This would be a value system approach to 2 Corinthians uh, 6. So what, what this simply means is there are things that we receive right alongside unbelievers, and there are things that we redeem. So, so this means things that are not overtly Christian, but we might view in a particular way that other uh, people do not who are not Christians yet. So, you know, we might receive Christmas, but we might redeem Halloween, for example. We might look at it and talk about it and think about it and celebrate it in a unique Christian way that's redeemed, that's kind of purified, or that sees Christ in it, for, for example. But there are also things that we outright, the third R, we outright reject, right? In 1 John 2.15, it says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of God, the love of the Father, is not in him. So think of things like rejecting sexual sin outright. That would make us different from the world, right? And I mean by that, any form of sex outside the bounds of a marriage between one man and one woman. Anything outside of that um, would be sexual sin. That would be, that would be a mark of... The, we would reject anything outside of that then, right? That would make us different and distinct from, from the world, generally speaking. Or we reject the notion of relative truth as Christians. Or we reject extreme forms of individualism, unlike our culture. Or we reject domineering forms of leadership, but the world in general uh, doesn't do that. These are rejections, examples of things uh, that, that make us different or that we reject. We might redeem alcohol, but we reject drunkenness. We might redeem food, but reject gluttony, as more examples. Or to look at it a little bit differently, we might look odd to non-believers in, how, in terms of how much we value adoption, as another example. So that's a value, not a rejection, but it's something that might make us look kind of odd. And historically, that's been the case for Christians in different cultures and times, a bit more so maybe in some cultures and times than others, but because of how much Christians have have valued adoption because adoption's at the core of our belief system, right? We believe we've been adopted by God into his family, out of the family of Satan, into the family of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so um, we value that on preaching level, but also theological level, but also on a physical level as well. Okay, going back to the passage itself, though, we could talk about this all day, but those are some examples. 
Going back to the passage itself, though, we ask this question again of what does it mean to go out from their midst? One, one of the bigger uh, things that being unequally yoked looks like is idolatry. All right, so it goes back to those first few questions he asked, uh, what, and they're kind of repeated in different ways, right? What, what agreements or fellowship or portion does God's temple, which is us, have with idols? How can we mix those things? How could we claim that they could go together as Christians? Or Christ with Belial, another word for the devil. But also, and, and this, this is really important as well, we need to read this passage, as I was saying before, in connection with what he's been saying up to this point. And here's some questions I want to throw out there that helps us, un, helps us kind of think in this way. This is how the, the meanings widened in the right contextual sense. But here are the questions. What is the threat right now in this church? If you guys have been here for, for this series, you've read this book before, what's the threat in Corinth? What's going on in the church? What, why is Paul so anxious for them? And, and how does his love kind of come out in tough love language? What's been going on? What types of, another way to, to ask it would be, uh, what types of yoking with unbelievers is already happening that Paul must be addressing in, in the church? And when we ask that question, the answer has to do with grace-diluting theology. Or, in other words, a type of teaching that kind of sounds biblical, but it isn't. It, it syncretizes or mixes or yokes the grace of God with the works of our hands, the good performance of our hands, and the mask wearing that associates with it, versus it being by grace alone, the grace of God alone, that saves us. That's been the problem. That's been the yoking, right? And so Paul at least means this. He certainly means other things as well, like we've been talking about, but this has to be a part of it contextually, or the passage doesn't really make sense here at all. A type of teaching that yokes grace with works. Paul is just simply saying, don't do that. Don't worship yourself. Don't worship the works of your hands in an idolatrous manner. And that, remember, is the big major point to idolatry in the Bible is, is it wasn't uh, simply the fashioning of a god in the form of bronze or gold or wood. It was the fact that somebody's hands did that. It, it was the fact that when you did that, you weren't just worshiping the God, you're worshiping what you made with your actual hands as a blacksmith or a sculptor. That was the problem. It was wor worshiping what you did as a person. This is what the whole story arc of the Bible is about, moving us away from that, ourselves and the good that we do, to Jesus alone. This is why the laws were introduced, to show, how, show us how much we couldn't keep them, right? So we'd stop and run to God empty-handed. And this is what's going on here as well. When idolatry is mentioned, it's not simply the fashioning of gods into bronze images. It's worshiping ourselves. Don't worship ourselves. And uh, it's, it's actually interesting in Galatians 4.30, a very similar argument, different letter, of course, but Paul, uh, in context, he says something similar. He says, but what does the scripture say? Actually, quoting this odd story from the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, he he cites this story about Hagar, a slave woman, and then uh, says in verse 30, get rid of the slave woman and her son, the son being Ishmael, if you remember this story. For the slave 
woman's son will never share in the inheritance with Isaac, with Sarah's son, with the free woman's son. And his whole argument here is, is to say Hagar represented the Old Testament. She represented works-based righteousness. And Paul's saying, cast her out of your life and your church, just like she was from the family of Abraham. She was cast out. In the, in the spirit of that now, we spiritually understand this, allegorically understand this as an embracing of the New Testament at the expense of the Old Covenant, which was a covenant of works for the sake of the covenant of, of, of grace. There's so much more to that. I know if you're, if you're reading this with fresh eyes, that might not make a lot of sense. But, but basically, I, I share this to say that it's basically sounding a lot like today's passage, isn't it? Paul here is saying, don't be yoked with that type of theology, whereas here he's saying, cast it out of your churches. Cast works-based theology out of your heart. In that sense, don't be unequally yoked with, uh, with unbelievers. And it's, it's interesting, too, that Paul uses the phrase unbelievers. Did you guys notice that? I mean, he could have said a lot of different words for someone who's not a Christian yet, but he chooses unbelief here because to not believe the Bible says, like in Romans 4, to not believe is to work for your perfection. It's to perform. It's to climb the ladder. Belief and work are set at odds. And so here Paul is saying, don't be yoked with those who don't believe or who don't trust in God alone for the forgiveness of their sins. Don't be yoked with those who believe that you get in by Jesus, but you stay in by you. That was a major heresy in the first century church, and it is today as well. The idea that you get in by Jesus, but you stay in by being a good person. That, that is the point to the book of Galatians. The issue. It comes up in the book of Acts in chapter 15. It was rampant theology in the first century, right after Jesus ascended. Because we so much want to be people that check the list and save ourselves. Grace is offensive. So Paul here is saying, Belief, you know, belief is not just assent to facts. Belief is trust. And so, Paul, it means abdication from our thrones. That's what it means. You know, slain idolatry means abdication from our thrones. It means looking at our life as though it's not about us. And the gospel promotes that way of thinking, right? Because it's God's son bleeding for us on a cross, not us climbing the ladder to him. That's what it means to be saved. All right, so the problem and the remedy then, uh, I think that this passage, I mean, essentially what I've said so far, so far I think is, um, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of the passage. But it's still like, if you read this carefully and slow down, there is a problem in this passage. There's also a solution, but there is a pretty big problem. Whether you're reading this as a non-Christian or a Christian, there's a problem for us. And I want to start by reading verse 17 again to help us see this. Verse 17 Again, Paul is quoting God from Isaiah, the, the, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. And he says, Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. Okay, here's the problem. The problem is, if you look at that last verse especially, your last clause, and we think, well, actually the whole passage, but we think, but wait a minute, I have touched unclean things. And if I'm honest with myself, I touch unclean things every single day of my life. 
Like, what now? What, what if we have been unequally yoked in marriage? What if some, some of you might be in a mixed spiritual marriage and you're listening to this and it feels heavy because you're like, well, I did something the Bible's saying don't do. Now I feel kind of stuck. You know, is God going to punish me for this? Should I, what should I expect? What if we have unequally yoked friendships that are swaying us away from Christ? What if we have unequally yoked theology? What if we're un, unequally yoked in the stuff of life like we listed out some things before? What if we've loved the world as Christians? Will God welcome us then? Why does verse 17 end with a then? Does that sound pretty conditional? If we do the things in the first three clauses, well, then God will welcome, but what if I haven't? And, and the reason why we're doing this is because without Christ, this is an important piece of this passage. Without Christ, this would be an unliftable passage. It would be completely damning in every way. Yet if we look closely, Christ is all over this passage, and there's gospel truth all over it. And he's present not as one who calls out to us from a distance, like God kind of did in the Old Testament through Isaiah. He was calling intentionally, and there was love in there, but there was still a lot of distance. But actually, Christ calls out to us as one who came the whole way, right? to die for us, and to die specifically for our unclean hands. This is why he came, right? In verse 16, this is why, this is the gospel. This is, these are the prophecies. This is why Jesus came. God said, I will make my dwelling among sinners. I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That was not possible in the Old Testament because of sin, because of the barriers, because of the laws that couldn't be kept. So this was a very forward-looking, never fully realized prophecy in Old Testament times. But later, in Jesus Christ, it finds its goal in its finish line. Remember John 1 uses the same language. Some of the first words of the New Testament say, the word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh. Jesus became a human being. The Son of God became a human being. He's called the Word. He's the Word. Ultimate thing God is speaking to us is Jesus. So the Word became flesh and made His dwelling. There's that same Word, His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's like Christmas in a verse right there, right? But He didn't come just to dwell. We, we know this as well. Someone has said before that for every one look at the manger, we should take ten looks at the cross. He came to die. And without his death for sinners, his arrival is actually bad news. There's no remedy then also for, for this passage today. There, there'd be no remedy for the tensions and problems in this verse. And for Christians who struggle to perfectly live this out, there, there, there'd be no hope, just heaviness. In fact, we can go further and say because Jesus died for us, remember uh, and if you don't know this yet, understand, we understand Jesus' death, because the Bible does, in substitutionary terms. He gave himself for us. He became a sinner on the cross, even though he wasn't four sinners off the cross, so we may become the righteousness of God. He substituted, he took the bullet for us, essentially, in love. And so because of that, then, we can affirm, as we do in other parts of the Bible, that he took on the darker corners of this passage as well so we can have hope. To use some of its language and to show you what I mean by this, 
Jesus Christ is the one who touched unclean things during his earthly ministry. Like when he touched lepers and, and healed them, if you remember that story. He is the one also who became unclean for us by being likened to a snake when he was crucified and who was yoked with unbelievers by dying with criminals like us and who was, quote, counted among transgressors, per Isaiah 53.5, as Isaiah foresees. So we might be cleansed and unseparated from God. In one sense, you could understand that, that these were unlawful things for Jesus to do. If you understand the Old Testament law and what it was saying for Jews to, to do and for Jews to keep before God, Jesus was breaking the law. He was breaking it. Based on the Old Testament, he was mingling with Gentiles. He was touching the unclean. He was yoking himself with those who were far from his father. But this is precisely why he's doing it. He's establishing a new system breaking the old one over his knee because it didn't work. It separated people from God. It didn't make them one. The old system bred separation was being replaced by a new system that bred salvation and union. And this is the gospel, you guys. If you're a Christian, remember this. If you're not a Christian, know this. It's because of Jesus and because of the New Testament Because of his death that God can truly say to us, like this passage does, can truly say to us, you are my sons and daughters. You are my adopted sons and daughters. And the statement, I will welcome you. It's only because Jesus died. Don't think for a second that if you perfectly, religiously, somehow not touch unclean things for the rest of your life, then God will accept you on that basis? That's not what this is saying. You can't, you haven't, none of us have. We have dirty hands before the Father that only he can clean, right? And it's through the fact that Jesus breaks the old laws and is cursed by them and dies for them and through that establishes a new, brand new testament with new stipulations and rules and expectations that are only bent on him, only set on him. This is what we do in communion. We eat the New Testament. It's bread and wine. It's body and blood, not law. So for sinners like us, again, wherever you are spiritually, but especially if you're a Christian here, most of you probably are, this is a grace for us. This is an ongoing reminder, this passage, this is an ongoing reminder for us that we have been cleansed. But it's also the power behind our obedience. This is a call, as we, we see here, the, the last verse of today's passage. The call for us to cleanse ourselves is simply then a call to acknowledge that we're already cleansed. Uh, I would add a passage here I did not put on screen, but uh, 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul says, You have been washed, Christian. You have been, past tense, sanctified and made holy. That's already done. Because God does it, you don't. So because it's been done, then do it. Because you've been, to use language from elsewhere in the Bible as well, because you've been clothed, clothe yourself. Because you've been saved, save yourself. Here, because you have been cleansed already, well, cleanse yourself. 
This is all language from the Bible. It's the same idea, right? Live as though it's true, freely. Or the language from today is, since we have these promises, since they're already true, then cleanse yourselves. You see that? That's distinct Christian theology there. The other religions don't have those clauses because it's about us, strictly, like exclusively. But since we have the promise that God said, I will welcome you through my son. We have the promise of, you will be my sons and daughters. It will happen. I am like a father to you, not a boss, a father. Because we have those promises, cleanse yourself. Because we have these promises of being in the family of God, enter, in the, enter into life by, by grace. And isn't that idea of sons and daughters just a beautiful thing too? When you think about, um, you know, I was thinking this week when I read this afresh just about how sons and daughters don't work themselves into the family. Right? Like, if you're, if you're a, a child, <clears throat> we're all a child, or we're a child, but it, we, we were born into a family or we were adopted, right? And in both of those cases, we are passive to that, right? No one has ever, like, worked their way into the status of being a child. You can't do that. We, we were just loved into that state. We were chosen into that state, Right? And this is true for you. Everyone here is a Christian. And if you're not yet, this can be true of you if you believe in Jesus and trust him. But if you're saved, this is your identity now. You are sons and daughters of the king based on grace. To be a son or a daughter is to be a child of grace, to be a person of grace. It's to distinctly not be a child or a person of works because you can't work your way into that relationship. You can ruminate on the fact and how much you're loved every single day but you can't earn it. You can't stay in that relationship by how much good you do. You can't maintain it by being a good person. It just is, right? This is what grace means. Children are born and adopted. They don't climb. They don't ascend. They were loved into that state. And so when we look at some of these themes here, um, and I'll, I'll just, I'll reaffirm these things for us as we close, but I want us to see this angle, the idea that Jesus took on the dark corners of this passage for you. Um, maybe you've forgotten that today. Jesus died for you. He loved you to the point of shedding blood. Never forget it. Jesus came to wash your feet, and I don't mean physically. I mean, he came to cl- cleanse you spiritually, to, to wipe your heart, your DNA, from its cursedness. He came for this purpose, to dwell among sinners, to break the old covenant in half over his knee, and to establish a new one in its wake. One based on his crushed body and not our law-keeping ability. You know, and, and the more we ruminate on that, I mean, if this is true and we believe it and we're wrecked by it, then how could we not live like it? This is what the Bible invites us to, a cleansed life, a yoked with other believers kind of life in marriage or friendship or community. A life underneath the Christmas promise of God dwelling with us and even more the Easter promise of the destruction of our sin and the overwhelming of death. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for this passage today, uh, for its complexities, and also for its simplicities. Your word is strange like that. We thank you for it. Um, Father, help us, God, in our endeavor to, to, to keep this verse, to cleanse ourselves because we've been cleansed, uh, to yoke ourselves with grace and not with works, with grace-centered theology and not work-centered theology, a la this passage and a la Romans 4 and many other places as well. Father, forgive us of our dirty hands. Uh, forgive us for um, worshiping ourselves. And we just invite you to continue to purify us as your bride. Make us new. Um, purify us as your sons and daughters. Help us to be sons and daughters and not employees of the king, but sons and daughters of the king. Right alongside and in Christ, the ultimate son of God, being co-heirs with him as the scriptures speak to. Liberate us, save us, and help us, God, to respond uh, with, with this last song. In Christ's name we pray, amen.